Father, as uh, we do get into your word, I do pray that, Lord, as we uh, look at this book and look at this guy's heart for the church of that generation, I, I pray that, Lord, you would speak to us. Give us, Lord, give us ears to hear, but more importantly, hearts that, that are moldable and pliable, that you can shape and get us into that place, God, where you want us. I thank you that you see us so differently even than we see ourselves. And so we want you to bless this time. We want you to speak to us. And most of all, we want you to change us. Thank you for bringing us here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as we uh, get into the book of Jude, interesting, interesting book as you think about it. Obviously, another little short letter, but again, short letters don't mean that they're not powerful. It means that they're short. So as we're looking at Jude and, and kind of working through, this is a book that's probably one of the greatest books on apologetics. Jude is someone and, and someone who kind of just starts out and goes full on and full bore. And he's worried about the church. And he's writing to the church. And the interesting thing is, Jude's not writing to the church and telling the church they need to fix something. He's writing to the church and saying, you need to watch out and you need to be aware. And here's the thing. If that was true in the first century, how much truer it must be in the 21st century. So listen, I think Jude is a very relevant book. I think it's a really good book, and I think it's something that we need to pay attention to. So let's start here, and uh, oh, by the way, it's probably one of the most picked on books. The critics do not like Jude. From the very start to the very end, they're picking and looking at things, and, and so we'll discuss some of that. So he starts out, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So the very first thing he tells us his name, Jude. Jude is short for Judas. And again, I think we, you know, in the English language, maybe we're doing that because of the stigma that's attached to Judas Iscariot. Like people usually don't name their kids Judas, normally, unless you don't like them. But listen, you normally don't do that. So it's shortened up, but here's the interesting thing, and this is the critics. Who is this guy? There's six different people in the New Testament who are Jude or Judas, if you will, if you go through, and he's not one of the apostles, I don't think. Well, we'll, we'll name some of them. Listen, as we think about these six people, there's Judas of Damascus in Acts chapter nine that Paul talked about when he was in Damascus. There's Judas Barsabbas who went with Paul to take some of the money. And then later on, there's a guy, Judas of Galilee, who's mentioned. All of those are mentioned in the book of Acts, and there are different Judases in the book of Acts. Then in the Gospels, you have Judas Iscariot, and then you have Judas, the brother of James, two apostles that are named Judas. And most of us, I think, forget about the second one. So here's what we do know. It can't be Judas Iscariot. He's dead. So we know it's not him. And then the other apostle is Judas, the son of James, and this Judas says he's the brother of James. So I don't think it's him. So I don't think it's the other one. So 
There's one more Judas that I didn't mention that's mentioned in Mark chapter 13, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 13 or Mark chapter six. And that's a brother of Jesus. There's James and Judas, the brothers of Jesus, that are mentioned by name. I think it's gotta be that one. Why do I think that? Because this Jude says he's a brother of James. And so we kind of put that together and understand. So I think, listen, I think this is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I gotta be really honest. If I was a half-brother of Jesus, I would be telling people. Right, especially, especially after he died and rose again, I would be letting people know, right? That's my brother, so that's my big brother. And uh, let people know not to mess with me because <laughs> Jesus is my big brother and he's gonna take care of me. So I think I would go that way, but Jude does not go that way. Listen to what he says about his relationship with Jesus. Oh, by the way, while he was alive, his brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah. As a matter of fact, they kind of mocked him at different times, right? It was only after the resurrection that their hearts were changed that God got a hold of them, which I find fascinating just thinking about them and, and how they must have felt. You know, you would, you would really feel like a major dork if you made fun of him and then later on, oh, he was for reals, right? And so you're kind of going through that. But look at, his, look at how he relates to Jesus after the resurrection. What does he say? Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Not a brother, a bondservant. And that word for, listen, that, that whole idea of bondservant in that generation was the most dedicated, loyal, faithful servant in a household. It's somebody who they committed their life to serving that person. So he lets us know, listen, this is where I'm at now. I might have mocked him, might have made fun of him, but now I consider myself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Then he says, and brother of James, and I think partially so, we would know which Jude or Judas is writing, but also there's some credibility there. James was the leader of the church, and James is the same James that wrote the book of James, but by now he's leading the church and Jude has some credibility. So that's who's writing this. That's the person that's writing this. So in some ways, listen, he's not a higher up in the church. He's not somebody that had a certain position or anything, but he saw stuff going on and he's gotta write about it. So Jude's writing, who's he writing to? This part I really like. He's writing to those who are called, in the middle of verse one, those who are called sanctified by God the Father and, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, I love that. Listen, he, he lists three things there. And I think those are three things that we need to hold on in our hearts. We're called, we're sanctified, set apart, and we're preserved by Jesus Christ. That's, that's some good stuff, right? When you just think about, that's who the church is. Oh, some of your translations might have, instead of sanctified, might have beloved of God instead of sanctified, and uh, you know, it's a whole thing on the word and stuff, and, and I like the idea of sanctified better because not so much a, you know, that we're holy, but that we're set apart. God called us, God set us apart, and Jesus Christ preserves us. Is that good? 
Hey, that's who we are. Now listen, these are the people. Hey, he's trying to encourage them, and he's trying to encourage them to stand fast against some false teaching that's happening in their midst. So he lets them know this is who you are. And when you begin to think that, listen, hide that in your heart. And the next time the devil comes knocking, you can let him know, wait a minute, I'm called. I'm sanctified. I am preserved by Jesus Christ. I like the ideas. Looking in the mirror sometimes, I like to just tell myself, I'm called. I just like that I did. God called me. You know, I was, I was the guy who grew up on the playground and kind of always got picked last. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of us are that way, right? Oh, we'll take him. You know, you're that guy, whether, no matter what it was, you just will take him. And then I like to think about two times in my life I've been called, chosen. The first time was by the United States government in 1972. That kind of makes you feel good. You get a letter, you have been chosen, you've been selected by your government. And that was kind of a, well, no, it wasn't a good thing. And then I was called by Jesus Christ. That's good. Man, you just rest in that. He called me. So listen, he called, he sanctified. So this is who he's writing to. Then he gives them a little bit of a greeting, and it's kind of short. Listen, in verse two, he says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, I just kind of like the way that sounds. A lot of the, a lot of the brainiacs want to like break this down, look at each piece, and, and talk about how you, you, know, you can't have mercy unless you have love, and then you can't have peace unless you have mercy, and then they kind of break everything down and make it very, very uh, 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 cerebral and kind of getting into that. Here's what I like to think. Here's what he says. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Hey, that's what he's asking for, for those people. So this is the heart of Jude. So Jude, the brother of Jesus, is writing the letter. He's writing to, obviously, the church. We, we kind of figured that out. And he wants him, listen, he wants him to be blessed. So that's the introduction. That, that's what's going on. Now, let's kind of get into his theme and what he's writing about. In verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent. Oh, notice he calls him beloved. You know what that tells me? He was a little bit close to this church. It's not just, listen, it's not a church far away. It's not a church he didn't know. These are people Jude knows that he's interacted with, that he's been part of. So he says, beloved, he says, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That is a powerful verse, right? So Jude, and again, I know that I tell you guys, you, you probably don't wanna be in here, this mine, but man, I'm reading that in my imagination. I, I kinda get the idea, here's this guy, he sat down, he's getting ready to write a letter. By the way, this letter was probably written around 68 AD, around that time frame, uh, late 60s, let's just say, uh, not 1960s, but the 60s. And, and listen, he's writing this letter, and I get the idea that something's going on in this church, and he sat down, he just wanted to encourage them. And he sits down to write a letter talking about, listen, talking about what? Our common salvation. Now, not the idea that salvation is common, the idea that they all had in common salvation, right? They were part of the called, the set apart, 
uh, the, the, the sanctified and those preserved by Jesus Christ are part of that. And he says, listen, the thing that we had and the thing that I wanted to encourage you in is our common salvation. This idea that we're saved, this idea that we're part of the fellowship. And I get the idea that he started even to write the letter and all of a sudden, the Lord changed his mind. Something happened that triggered something in his heart. Does that ever happen to you where you're kind of going in one direction and all of a sudden you're going, whoa, I gotta change. And he's all set to write that letter and he goes, wait a minute, I can't write about that right now. And he says, why, why? He says, listen, I was gonna write that but now I found it necessary, notice that word, necessary, to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I wanted to write about our salvation, but God moved me in such a way that I'm changing the whole direction of this letter, and I'm gonna write to you, and I'm gonna write to you exhorting you. And it was necessary. Listen, it wasn't something that was just kind of, I think I should do this. Notice he says it was necessary that I write to you exhorting you. That again means, listen, that means encouraging, that means pushing, that means dragging, whatever it takes, right? Exhorting you that you need to contend earnestly for the faith. Wow. I believe that if that church in the first century needed to contend earnestly for the faith because of what was going on, how much greater do we in the 21st century need to contend earnestly for the faith? That word contend means, listen, it's written in such a way that you're going to strive, you're gonna strain, you're gonna work, you're gonna do everything you can to protect the faith. Now listen, as he says the faith, he's not talking about the faith we used to believe, he's talking about a body of doctrine, the truth, the gospel that's been laid out. You need to fight for that. Well, if they needed to fight for it, how much more do we need to fight for it in our, in our generation and where we're at? Man, and I, listen, if there's anything I think we should get out of the book of Jude, it's that right there, that you and I need to contend earnestly for the faith. And notice, that he, notice what he says, this faith that what? That was once for all delivered to the saints. It doesn't change. The gospel does not change from generation to generation. We don't add to it, we don't take away from it, we don't make it more palatable. It's the same gospel and that's the problem is some people wanna modernize it. Some people wanna change it. Some people wanna make it a little bit more appealing. You know, hey, if you just tell people that they're sinners and they need to be saved, that's not a good thing, some say. We need to make them feel good about themselves and then that they can you know, come to Jesus and feel better about themselves. Listen, if you don't feel bad about yourself, you're not gonna come to Jesus. You gotta come to the place where you know you need salvation. So he says, you and I, we need to fight. Listen, we need to be people, we need to fight for the faith that was once for all, that's not gonna change, that's steadfast, that's what we need to do. Now, I think it's important to say this. I think we need to fight and contend, but I don't think we need to be contentious. Let's don't be jerks for Jesus. I don't think there's anything worse than jerks for Jesus. I sometimes, sometimes I even just observe people and I think, oh no. 
don't do that, don't say that, don't be that way. We can contend for the faith without being obnoxious. And we can be immovable without being rude and gross. We can do that, and that's what we're called to do. We need to do this strong, and we need to be those people. We're not gonna move. So this is, what's he writing about? He's writing about the idea that something is going on in the church that we need to be people, we're gonna be immovable, we're gonna be like a wall, man. And when people hit us, they're gonna hit a wall and they're gonna wonder what they just hit, right? So we need to do that in our generation and we need to be strong. So that's what he laid out. So Jude's writing, writing to the church, and he's telling us, here's what we need to do. That's the whole letter, that's what the whole letter is about. Some of you might say, okay, well then let's wrap this thing up and go home. Well, now he's got to tell us what's going on. Listen, now he's going to explain why he's made that statement. He's going to tell us a little bit more a little later on towards the end how we're going to do it. But first, we need to know why do we need to do this? What is going on in that church that so motivated Jude to change from writing about our common salvation to exhorting them to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, here's what's going on. Look at verse four. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the truth of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord and our Lord, or the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Oh, certain men have crept in. So the first thing we know is creepy people are showing up, right? They crept in, they're sneakers, they're sneaking in. I, I kind of like the idea that they kind of slither under the door. But they're in our midst. He says, these guys creeped in, and here's what he said, unnoticed. How did they get in unnoticed? Why aren't people looking around understanding this? Well, number one, here's what I found in my years of ministry. People who come in who want to disrupt what God is doing and want to teach lies, they don't wear, they don't wear like name tags. I'm coming to mess up your fellowship, right? Or I'm coming to teach lies. They don't have name tags. They kind of look like all of us. They even use some of the same words we use. They use a lot of the same words we use. So how are we gonna notice these people and not be like this church and let them creep in unnoticed? Number one, we contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we pay attention. And we're people that we know our word and we know the truth and we let the truth be our guide, not somebody or something else. But they crept in unnoticed. Every time I read that, I think, I think that's a bit strange, because a lot of us, a lot of us, I've heard people say this a lot, I wish I could be part of a first century church. No, you don't. I've read letters to first century churches, like the letter to Galatians, the letter to the Corinthian churches. They weren't so hot, right? They weren't such good, or even this church. This church wasn't doing too good. These guys crept in unnoticed, and then he says, listen, he says, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Now, he's gonna explain that in a minute. You and I may not notice somebody, but God notices, 
and God is gonna take care of them. We need to know that. You know, sometimes we get frustrated and, hey God, why don't you just like toast them right now? Well, because he's got a plan, and you know, that's not part of his plan. So listen, he says they, 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 they were marked out for condemnation, and then here's what he says about them. Number one, they're ungodly, and they turn the grace of God into lewdness. Oh, a little bit of immorality going on. Hmm, sound familiar? Sound like some stuff going on in our generation of people? Here's the thing I've noticed. When people start going down a path and start changing doctrine and making doctrine fit their lifestyle, it's because their lifestyle's not lining up with the word of God and they're trying to do something. And usually, usually it ends up being some kind of sexual immorality that they're involved in. So he says lewdness. I don't think that's all he's talking about here, but I think that's part of it. But then listen, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They deny who he is. And I believe, listen, I believe what, what, what Jude is saying is they deny that Jesus is God and they kind of get into that whole thing. So that's what's going on. These guys crept in to the church and they were unnoticed and here's what they're doing. Now obviously Jude saw it, but other people aren't seeing it. And he says, so listen, I was gonna write to you about salvation, but here's what, here's what happened. I realized this is going on in our church, beloved. And we need to be people that we're going to contend earnestly for the faith. We're gonna do something. And they crept in, and here's the thing. Man, when people, when people deny Jesus, they've denied everything. And it always upsets me when they wanna call themselves Christians. And hey, it's happening, it's happening big time in our churches that are calling themselves Christians today. It's happening, and we need to be people. And we're gonna take a stand. We're not gonna stand for that. You know, you can have conversations with people about Jesus. Even in Bisbee, I know I make fun of Bisbee, but some of the New Agers, you can talk to them about Jesus. They don't have a problem talking about Jesus. Until you say, Jesus who died on the cross and rose again on the third day. Then they're gonna argue with you. Then they're gonna get uptight. So we need to know that. Listen, we need to define things. When you're talking to people, you need to get them to define what they're talking about. What do you mean by Jesus? What do you mean by, you know, even God? You start getting them to explain things to you. So these guys, they're, they're turning the grace of God into lewdness, and they're denying, and, uh, denying the Lord God and Jesus. So he lays that out. Now he's going to give us some long examples. He's going to go through and give us examples in the Old Testament, where people who denied, denied the, the, the truth got judged, and those who fell into apostasy and walking away from the truth they had. So he's gonna give us three examples here uh, today that we're gonna look at, and we need to be people that, hey, we're ready to now stand for the truth and stand firm. So the first one, he says in verse five, but I want to remind you though you once knew this. Now, listen, I think what he's talking about, I wanna remind you, though you once knew this, is not just the first group he brings up, I think it's everything he's about to bring up. Here's what he's saying. You once knew this, these truths, what happened to people, but you've kinda of drifted away from it. Why do we drift? Here's what I know, I know I drift when I'm not reading my Bible every day. 
right? When I'm not in the word of God, I start drifting, I start forgetting, I start not, you know, not paying attention to what God has said because I'm kind of ignoring him. So listen, he's telling these guys, these guys shouldn't have crept in unnoticed. And he goes, I'm gonna tell you some stuff that you once knew and had hid in your heart, but somehow it's become distant to you and you're not paying attention. So the first group he talks about here is he says, listen, that the Lord, having saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now listen, as he's talking here, I find that kind of interesting. There's people that God saved, brought out of Egypt, but then he destroyed them. What happened? What happened? Remember, oh, for homework you can read, you can read Exodus uh, 7 through 17 and then Numbers 11 through 14 and kind of look at it. But what happened, remember, remember God brought, you know, there was a showdown, right? Moses and Pharaoh, I call it the showdown of gods and our God won. And then they released them. Remember when they finally get to the end of all of this stuff, the Egyptians are telling the Israelites, get out of here, right? And they gave them all their stuff to take to the Salvation Army for the yard sale. They just loaded them up with stuff. They would just take our stuff, just go, just get out of here and take care of it, and you guys just leave. And the children of Israel are going, woohoo, yes, we're free. And then they go a few miles, and, they go, and then they go, oh, freedom's not so good. And then they come to the Red Sea, and they're going, what are we going to do now? Remember when they get all mad at Moses? I love that scene, man. They're screaming and yelling at Moses. How dare you do this? We want to go back. And Moses, in the original language, here's what Moses says. Chill out. (laughs) Our God's got this. And he parts the Red Sea, and they go through, and again, woohoo, yes! And they're all happy, and then they they go, and they get all the way, listen, man, they get all the way to the border, right? They get right on the edge of the promised land, and what did God tell them? I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, and I'm going to take you to a land that really stinks, and you're going to have a really hard time. What does he tell them? I'm going to take you to a land that flows with milk and honey. And they get to the land, and they're going, I wonder if we can really trust God. Is Is he really going to take us to a land that flows with milk and honey? And remember, they send the spies Have you ever found in your life when you question God's promises and you check it out that you don't discover anything that he hasn't already promised you? It's kind of crazy, right? So they go and what do they find? A land flowing with milk and honey. The only problem was there was some really big people there. And so the spies go, 12 of them, they come back, 10 of them are going, oh no. There's really huge people. Two of them go, yeah, but man, those really huge people have really big fruit. And we're gonna be fine because it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's just go take the land. Our God said he's gonna give it to us. And the 10 go, no, we can't take those people. They're too big. And they have this thing. And the 10 convince the entire nation not to go in. And so what did God do? He destroyed them, right? What did he do? Everyone who was 20 years and older died in the desert, and those under 20 got to go in, except the two, right? Caleb and Joshua got to go in. So that's what he's talking about. So here, the first apostasy we see are those who did not trust God and did not believe God. They believed by sight rather than walking by faith, 
And it, listen, it failed them miserably. So that's the first group. Now the next group, I'm thinking, oh, Jude, why do you do this? This next group is one, again, a lot of the critics have a hard time with. And the angels, verse 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. What is he talking about? I know that according to Isaiah and according to Ezekiel, Satan rebelled against God, Satan fell, was kicked out of heaven, and a whole bunch, again, according to Revelation, a whole bunch followed him. So we know, listen, and I think these are the ones he's talking about, at least, at least the beginning. He's talking about those who did not keep their abode. It's the angels who rebelled against the authority of God. But what is he talking about they're kept in chains? Because my understanding is the angels who fell right now are demons that sometimes we have to deal with. And so they're not kept in everlasting darkness. They're not chained up. So who is he talking about? And this is where it gets complicated. I gotta be really honest with you. Me personally, I don't know. And you might go, well, Pat, it's simple. It's the, it's the angels from Genesis chapter six. In Genesis chapter six, it tells us, and you can read about it, that the sons of God took the daughters of men and married them or whatever, had intercourse with them, and produced an offspring, and these offspring were called Nephilim, and they were big people, maybe. Nephilim can mean a lot of things, but we'll just go with big people. So here's what people say. The sons of God were angels, because in Job, Job talks about the angels coming before God, and he calls them sons of God. So people say, Moses in Genesis is using the same word that Job used in the book of Job, and it's the word B'nai Elohim in the original language. It's sons of God, and that's who he's talking about. He's talking about angels coming down, having intercourse with women, and making half angel and half humans. Kind of weird. And then they say, and here's what a lot of people say, and that's why God brought the flood. Bad statement. My Bible says God brought the flood because man was evil and every intention of his heart was evil and God regretted making man so he destroyed all but eight. That's what my Bible says. It doesn't say he regretted making angels that fell and had intercourse with women and made these half angel, half human. He doesn't say that. So, you know, that's out. But some people who believe even in the, in the interaction of angels and women, some people believe that they don't, they don't go that other way. I have, and, and listen, I have a hard time with it because number one, first and foremost, the Bible never calls demons, fallen angels, sons of God. Only good angels. So I think that kind of has some problems there that you gotta work through. And then you can go through, uh, we could, we could go, I could go on and on. This is one of my topics that, that I can go on and on about because of, of beliefs I have and discussions I have. There's very godly, godly people who believe that the Genesis 6 is angels and, and humans having uh, intercourse and making half angel, half humans. There's, there's very godly, John MacArthur believes that. John MacArthur writes about that. 
Robert Furrow, a good friend of mine, believes that him and I talk about it extensively. All the time. (laughs) He will call me sometimes and just bring it up. And I'm thinking, dude, just stop. I'm right. (laughs) Just give it up. But listen, it's fun. It's fun. So, and we can't be sure about Genesis 6. I can't be sure here. But I don't think these, these are, that's who he's talking about. I think he's talking about just flat out rebellion against authority. So because he's given us examples. What is his, what is his purpose in writing? That we would contend earnestly in the faith. Why? Because certain men have crept in who are unnoticed, who are giving false doctrine. And one of the things, listen, one of the things people try and get you to do is disbelieve the truth that you believe. The other thing they try and get you to do is go against authority. These angels, listen, they rebelled against authority. They left their place of abode. I don't know which ones he's talking about. I know not every fallen angel is chained up. But obviously some are. When we get to Second Peter on Thursday nights, we'll talk about it. Maybe we'll do more in Genesis 6 then. But uh, listen, man. Hey, something happened where some of the angels got put in a dark, dark, dark hole waiting to be judged. I don't know what's going on. But here's, here's the thing. They rebelled against authority. So now back, come back. Some of you are like so lost right now. Sorry. So these angels, right? These angels did not keep their place. So those angels rebelled against authority. Then he brings up one a lot of us are familiar with, right? Verse seven, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these. Oh, by the way, a lot of people bring that up. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, why? Because sexual immorality on every level. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But so they say, listen, they say when when he says, and the cities around him in a similar manner to these, they say, oh, he's just talking about the angels and and their sexual immorality and verse six. No, I think he's talking about verse five and verse six. What is he doing? He's given us an illustration of those people who have come under condemnation. So just like the children of Israel who were destroyed, just like the angels who are locked up, these, similar to these, these guys, they're gonna also face judgment. So he says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of of eternal fire. Woo, that is intense, right? And most of us know, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened? God completely destroyed them. When we go to Israel, every time we go and we get in the Dead Sea area, I just think, man, you know, at one time, that was a very fertile area. Remember, Lot wanted to go there. Remember, he told Abraham, said, hey, you choose one way, I'll go the other way. You choose whatever you want. Lot goes, man, I want to go there. And Lot ends up in the city. Lot's hanging out with the people. Lot's buying into their whole system. Lot's forgetting who he is. And God gets ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he has a discussion up on the mountain with with Abraham. Abraham says, oh, you can't do it. What if there's 100 people? And what if there's 90 people? And what if there's, and he he like keeps going, come on, God, you just can't do it. And he gets down to 10. And God says, okay, I won't do it for 10. But now I'm going to go do it. And he goes down and who's there? So the angels show up and who's there? Lot. And the angels go to Lot's house. Do you remember this story? And 
this is my add-on, and the angels are trying to tell Lot, you gotta get out of here, and you gotta get way away from here. And Lot says, oh man, can I sin just a little bit? Now he doesn't say that, but that's what he means, because he goes, I don't wanna go way far away, I wanna kinda hang close. Hmm, sound familiar? God's telling us to get away from sin. Oh, I don't wanna go that far away. So anyway, but as the angels are there, do you remember what happens? The men of Sodom come, and they go, we want to have sex with those two guys who just visited you. That's gross, right? And they're beating down his door and they're coming. Do you remember what Lot says? This is where I get really disgusted with Lot. Do you remember what he said? Hey, I have two daughters. They've never known a man. I'll give you my two daughters. And not these. I'm thinking somebody needs to slap Lot. So the angels take care of it, right? The angels go, dude, you do not want to do that. So they strike the guys with blindness and then we know what happens. So listen, but why were they judged? Because of sexual immorality. I don't think it was just homosexuality, although that was going on. They were sexually immoral across the board. And we have to remember that, Christians. Homosexuality is wrong, but any sex outside of marriage is wrong. I don't care if it's heterosexual, I don't care what it is, it's wrong, and the Bible teaches that it's wrong. So we need to be careful that we just don't, don't get on one group. They're, they were sexually immoral, and they were doing immoral things, and God judged them and brought fire. So here's what he says, listen, he lets us know, here's what's going on. These guys have crept in, and just like the children of Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, they're marked for judgment. And God is going to bring judgment. And here's the lesson we need to learn. Why on earth do we want to hang out with them? If they're marked for judgment, why do we want to do that? We need to go over here, and we need to politely ask them, hey, don't disrupt our fellowship. We don't want you to be part of what we're doing. If you're not going to accept the truth, and I think it's, you can just say it like that. If you don't want to accept the truth, don't hang out here. We don't want people disrupting the truth that we believe. So saints, let's earnestly contend for the faith. We, I know we're supposed to go through chapter 10, but we're not going to. You guys don't listen fast enough. <laughs> we can't do it. Actually, it was last night. Blame it on last night. Saturday night sets the tone. But are you gonna stand for the truth? Are you willing, are you willing to be somebody, and listen, it's a little bit more than standing, you gotta be, you gotta be in a fight mode, right? You're not going to budge, ever, ever. I have found in my heart, or I've found in my life, when I make up in my heart to do something, I'm strong about not doing it. And I'm not gonna wait till somebody creeps in here, some creepy creeps in, and try, I'm, I'm ready, I'm loaded and I'm ready. And here's the main reason, and I share this all the time. When you start messing with the gospel, you're messing with my salvation. I need Jesus to get to heaven. Some of you are better than I am, and you can get there on your own. I'm not gonna make it without Jesus. I gotta have Jesus. And you mess with my Jesus, you're messing with my eternal life, and I'm gonna fight you for it. And I'm gonna go down fighting for it and I'm not gonna waver, I'm not gonna move. So all of us, listen, let's take some stands in the 21st century, and let's be men and women who are gonna earnestly contend for the faith. Now we'll look at some more illustrations next week, so we didn't get to verse 10, so now you have to come back, and so we can finish this, right? Let's stand up and pray.
Father, as we think about what's just been written here, Lord, I do pray, I pray, God, that we would get that understanding how important it is to stand for truth. And I pray that we would know that your word, this thing we call the Bible, is truth. And we can stand on it and we can be firm with it. And we can be people who are immovable because we know your word is true and your word doesn't change. So give us those hearts, God, that, that want to take that stand, that want to be firm without being rude and gross. And I'm gonna ask you to stay in the attitude of prayer for another couple moments. And if you are here and you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart, you've never asked him to forgive your sins, you've never asked him to take over your life, man, today's the day to do it. And even maybe some of what I taught kind of maybe disturbed you a little bit. And you're going, well, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's necessarily true. And it's because you've not believed in the truth. So if I'm talking to you right now, here's the thing, man, you can change everything right in this moment. All you have to do is get real with God. You gotta come to the place where you're willing to, with the Lord, let him know that you know you're a sinner. That's where it all starts, you gotta be honest. And I don't think, listen, I don't think I have to explain a lot about what sin is and the sins you commit. I think we all know we're sinners. The thing is, most of us don't want to admit it out loud or in our hearts to God. But you need to, number one, admit to him, you know you're a sinner. He already knows. He's not going to be shocked. He knows. Number two, you need to be sorry for your sin. You need to realize by sinning, you've offended a holy and righteous and perfect God. And what you've earned, what you deserve for sinning against him is his eternal wrath. That's what the Bible says. All of that's scary. All of that's intense. That's bad news. The good news is Jesus Christ came, went to the cross, and took the wrath that you deserve, the wrath that I deserve, upon himself. He paid the price, and now he offers you this eternal life. He tells you, I took your place. I paid your debt. It's paid in full. From the cross, he said, it is finished. The work of salvation is done. You have to believe it. So if you want to do that here today, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And remember, a prayer is just everything I just said. You're just going to talk to God. I'll lead you in a prayer. You can say this prayer out loud, or you can say it silently. But the important thing is that you mean it. It's got to be sincere from your heart. If you're backslidden, maybe you've walked away from the Lord and you came to church today and walked in and we kind of hit this area and it's talking about these people who kind of abandoned what they knew and you're going, oh no. Well, you know what? Come home, come back to Jesus. Right now, I always call it front sliding. You backslid, now front slide and come back to Jesus. Say this prayer with us. If you're watching online, you can say the prayer right where you're at. You don't have to be in this building. You can call on the name of the Lord right where you're at. Jesus, today I confess to you that I am a sinner. I'm sorry that I sinned against you, God. And right now I realize I need forgiveness. 
Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you today for your forgiveness. And now I want you to come into my heart and change me. Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my life and guide me. Today, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior.